Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco. He's professor and director of environmental studies at Ohio University. He also has served as the director of the Environmental Change and Security Program. It's a nonpartisan forum on environment, population, and security issues at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. Dr. DeBelco talks about how climate change issues might fare in the new Trump administration. He outlines specific worries and concerns from a scientist's perspective. Climate change is a term that encompasses a lot of different dynamics in the natural system. But it is, say, for example, distinct from weather, which is what happens on a day-to-day. But the change in the climate is longer-term change that is different than kind of variability, right? We have really cold days. We have really hot days. But this is- We have cold fronts. We have high-pressure zones. All of that, that's natural- Natural variability, and that's going to happen. But part of what's different is we've changed the concentration of the atmosphere of greenhouse gases in a way that is fundamentally changing temperatures um, that go beyond that normal variability. So if you think about it, think about the hot car in the summer with the windows rolled up, right? The, The sunlight comes in, but that same amount of sunlight can't escape. And it's the same thing with the Earth's atmosphere carbon dioxide, methane, some other greenhouse gases are that blanket around the earth. So solar radiation comes in, but not as much can escape. And so we're heating up the earth's atmosphere by changing the concentrations. And so that then climate change becomes an umbrella term for a whole host of dynamics that are longer term change over time rather than just We had a particularly cold winter or we had a particularly warm winter. What's also different is while the term doesn't necessarily uh, specify it, we now know from scientific investigation that change is being driven by different human behavior. So the greenhouse gas concentrations, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere have changed because of our actions. Uh, Give me an example of our actions. Starting with the Industrial Revolution, we started burning fossil fuels to drive 
our, our energy needs and development. And so it's been a real driver of progress. But it has gotten to a scale. If you see a chart, it does greenhouse gas levels over time. And we can move it way, way back by literally studying bubbles in ice core. That's why we go to the, the poles and drill ice cores and find those bubbles and we can figure out what the concentrations were then, thousands of years ago. And But today it's kind of up and off the chart. And so we have fundamentally changed the Earth's greenhouse effect, the concentration of the gases that do that. And so as a result, we humans are driving this change. So when we hear climate change, and let's take it to the next level now, uh, we hear uh, in the news we've had the warmest summer uh, in recorded history. Uh, we've had sort of back-to-back warmest summers. Uh, that could be an offshoot of climate change. We, we have major droughts in certain areas. Uh, are you saying that could be a result of climate change and just not the natural variations of weather? And so scientists spend a lot of time with that precise question and, and attribution of what's responsible for those change. And they have ways of studying what would have happened had there not been these increased concentrations and then the difference, the delta, and, and have been able to establish in lots of different areas and uh, geographically and topically that we're making that difference. Uh, in terms of our actions and changing those concentrations. So it can be, it's an anthropocentric or human-driven change as opposed to that natural variability. Temperature is the one we often cite, although for me it is part of, in some ways, the communication and the understanding challenge global average temperature change. You know, one degree, two degrees Celsius. What does that really mean? You know, okay, put on a heavier coat or turn up the air conditioner. But in fact, for starters, that's a global average temperature. Places like the poles are seeing much bigger changes. And so now these great fears about the accelerated melting of ice on land, on a Greenland ice sheet or Antarctic ice sheet, but also the sea ice and the fact that we now really have very clear evidence of the declining thickness and extent of Arctic ice. And it has all sorts of political implications. You can run ships through there, which you couldn't before. And from a geopolitical perspective, that's moving Russian fossil fuels to China. So it has really, you know, it's a lot farther along than the polar bears, right? The polar bears become this iconic way that we talk about right. what, what could be lost. But um, big changes politically, new race for resources in a new part of the world, other larger kind of uh, scientific concerns that, that are still ones where there are lots of questions like do the ebbs and flows of ocean waters and the different cool ones and warm ones and what that means for storms and our, our weather systems and such. Lots of questions. But I think that in climate change, one of the points of discussion on the science has been how certain are you of this happening? And the very in endeavor of science, of course, is to keep questioning. There's not that end right. point where we have it all figured out. Um, so the practitioners or the public would say, well, if you're not 100% certain, then I'm not going to buy in. But I think it's really a, an understanding of certainty or uncertainty that misses 
the fact that we make all sorts of really important decisions in the face of uncertainty all the time. So scientifically, it's not a matter of total certainty uh, or uh, being doubtful of what exists. It's it's a matter of degree. How certain are you that this produces uh, X produces Y? Right, and and in some cases there is very high degrees of certainty, but in part they're just such complex systems. And so, if a change in average temperature, what does that mean for? Clouds off from East Africa. Well, it could mean maybe there are more and there's more rainfall, or maybe there are fewer. And, you know, in some ways it's just like, well, which is it, guys? But at the same time, it may change over time. It may even be the same amount of rainfall. This is where it even gets crazy. So you say, well, a shorthand is wet, wet places are going to get wetter, dry places are going to get drier. But in fact, in some cases, what we are seeing is you get the same amount of rain. You just get it in five storms instead of 25 storms. Now, if you're a farmer, that really matters, right? If you get those nice, slow rains that are going to be friendly to your crops, that's great. If you get it in a big deluge that washes the topsoil away or that you can't capture and then use, then you got big problems. And so part of what has been unfortunate is that, like so many important issues, they get reduced to bumper stickers and slogans. Uh, we confuse questions of science versus debates and policy. And um, those things are certainly have to be connected. You want our science to inform our policy. But we often get sidetracked in debates about science that are really false debates when, in fact, what we're really doing is we're trying to make a political choice. And there are many different choices, but we're trying to make a political choice by questioning the science. Well, let's move from science to, to, to politics or, or at least policy making. Let's keep politics out of it for right now. We'll get to that. But, but you've spent the bulk of your professional career in, in policy areas and policy areas involving the environment and, and climate in, in particular. Talk about that conflation, though, between science and policy that you just talked about. It, it seems like for, as a layperson, people argue science to match their policy bent. And, and then the average person out there like me, we get confused. And and fair enough. And in fact, that confusion is part of the strategy for some who would like to avoid some policy transitions or an energy transition that might come from concluding that the science suggests this is a problem. So one typical response to taking climate change seriously and understanding it's happening and say fossil fuels are a driver of this is to make a transition to low or no carbon-based energy sources. So renewable energy, solar, wind, hydro, um, biofuels to some degree, some put nuclear in that category. And they all have the good and the bad that come with them, right? None of, none of these are perfect, but they are much lower in terms of their carbon impact. That is popular in some sectors. And as you might imagine, in sectors that have a financial interest in the fossil fuel old economy, not so interested. And in fact, work proactively and spend money 
to oppose that transition from an economic interest-based argument. The coal industry, the petroleum industry, natural gas, while a fossil fuel is an interesting one, it burns cleaner and more efficiently. It has a lot of um, it's still a fossil fuel. But now we have the fracking issue and, with and it, natural that, gas. And that extraction process has meant we have lots more of it than we thought or can get to a lot more. Um, there are big concerns about the methane that's released in that process. And so what we may count as gains in terms of gas versus coal emissions, we may actually lose that because methane being released in that process also contributes to the greenhouse effect. And it's not just, say, the oil companies, but if we think about it, uh, if you're a car company, you are built on fueling that car traditionally with fossil fuels. We are now seeing a transition um, that is driven by economics, by preference, by performance, by technology and innovation in the transportation sector where even the individual cars are making some of those moves. Some people oppose it. Some people very much see it as, as critical for all sorts of other impacts, right? It's, it's the greenhouse impacts, but it's also, well, what does it do in terms of local area air quality? And, you know, clearly we're very focused on this in the United States as an issue. But, for example, the Chinese just announced this week that they are going in their next five-year plan make a $340 billion investment in renewables, and that's largely driven by the economic and human health costs of burning dirty energy, burning fossil fuels. And pollution is a huge problem in China. Uh, it's huge. a huge problem for their economy. It's a huge problem for a rising middle class that now has greater expectations. Um, and so when people can't have their kids outside, when you have to shut schools for air quality days, then that is a political issue. It's an economic issue and one that has led them to move away from building new coal-fired power plants, and towards investment, not just in renewables. They're investing heavily in every type of energy. But I think it, it gets to where science has a number of issues where there are just empirical measurements that are happening or not. We're warming or not. It's, it's something one can measure. There's a lot of modeling that goes on, and there's a lot of questioning, oh, if it's the model and not actual measurements, is it actually true? I'd come back and say, well, you know, you, you pay attention to the weather forecast for the next day. These things are based on models. They're not going to be perfect, but they give you a sense. But on, on the policy side, part of what we are going to increasingly face are the hard facts of economics. And so when we debate about whether we should use coal and whether the recent Obama clean power initiatives regulating coal are attributable to the decline of that sector. In fact, if we analyze the impacts of mechanization and replacement of human labor with machines and the impact of cheaper, affordable, cleaner burning natural gas, where the power plants for natural gas are much cheaper than the coal and don't have all those health effects, and that's economics. That's not personal preference. That's not ideology. That's Those are kind of the clear-eyed hard-nosed economic decisions that I think are going to hopefully cut through some of the bluster that comes in the policy debates um, that we're, we're seeing, unfortunately, now in greater form. We'll be back after this message. 
The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Science seems to be based on exactitude. Policy seems to be based on compromise. How do you live in both worlds? Well, science is trying to understand... In some ways, even though those natural systems are really complex, they have a greater predictability than human behavior. <laughs> um, and, and so the social sciences or in, in economics and behavior, behavioral psychology and such, um, those are really hard to, to come with a certainty when you have, as you say, often predictable and really unpredictable outcomes based on human behavior. And so in that sense, I think it is, it's a challenge for natural scientists, physical scientists, the modelers who are, are so commonly working in climate change, to um, engage with those working in the policy realm. In fact, much of what they do is try to exclude that uncertainty, keep the humans out of the model. Right? And, and that is... Um, whether it's in our classrooms when we bring interdisciplinary students together, we day one put the natural scientists on one side, the social science on the other, and say, define environment. You know, are the humans part of it or not? And they get in this big tussle, and then they realize there's some really different basic assumptions. But I think our way forward is for us, if not to be fluent in those disciplinary approaches, to at least be conversant so that because we have to have those dialogues across economics, across law and technology, as well as physics, biology, atmospheric chemistry. These are, these are things that come together and we don't have the luxury, whether it's in our departments and classrooms or our federal bureaucracy or our local mayor who has to make really fundamental decisions. And I think in, in that sense where we have some productive bridging of a policy world and a science world are those who are on the ground responsible for their communities and face the face the realities of how this change is happening and don't have the luxury of sitting in washington and and posturing when there's a snowstorm and go build an igloo and bring a snowball to the floor of the senate and and so if you are if you're the local mayor 
you've got a bond issue passed, you need to build a water facility, water treatment facility that you need to last 50, 75, 100 years. If you're going to understand how to build, where to build that facility, you need to know what's gonna, what that water future is going to look like. The problem is with climate change, the past may not be a good predictor of the future. And so it really, uh, I think, puts us in a place that is both tough but also gives us some opportunity. So if stasis is not our reality but that variability, then we try to build resilient systems, human systems, infrastructure, and so ones that can take a hit and respond and be flexible. And so in some ways, the approaches that we need to find are kind of a no-regrets policy. It makes sense to to tackle these things in ways that have flexible responses rather than fixed responses. True, but let's take that to bridge into into real hardcore politics mm-hmm. here. You know, and let's stay domestically for for now. We've gone through a, an eight-year period of President Obama, and and uh, certainly a believer in climate change and uh, through action or executive order has put some things into place, uh, both uh, domestically and internationally, to, to deal with that. You now have a new political reality where you have the Republicans in charge of both houses of the, the Congress, uh, a lot of the people there are are adamant that climate change doesn't exist or it's not humanly driven. You've got a president, new president, who's been sort of all over the ballpark uh, and people, journalists like me, we've spent a whole lot of time trying to define where he is, which I'm not sure is uh, is productive. And then you have new appointees, people coming in as head of the EPA, head of the Department of Energy, for example, who have been opposed to the concept of climate change. This fluidity in the political process seems almost counterproductive to the the progression of science. Am I wrong or am I right? No, I, I think um, counterproductive is being very polite. Okay, uh, how would you define? Well, it? I, I think um, in terms of well, two two different approaches. Again, you know, maybe wanting to have too much to say a science separating the science and the policy. But certainly, if as we are seeing, there are cuts to basic science. We want to shut down the satellites that are collecting information that we use to study climate change. Then that's just flying blind. That's kind of willful ignorance to serve interests so that inconvenient truths to use. It's a, putting the head in the sand for right. a perhaps a momentary economic gain. Right. So, so that the approach to science is one that's very troubling because – uh, at, at that level of just gathering data, you are, you are not making a policy prescription. You're just trying to understand what the conditions are or aren't. And, and so that's uh, a great concern. And, and leadership of the important science committees in, in the Congress are adopting some of those perspectives. And that's, that's worrisome. Um, I think on the policy side, certainly – 
as many of them coming in from other policy state um, uh, level, governor, Texas, attorney general, Oklahoma, have been pursuing policy approaches that are very friendly to fossil fuels. They're representing fossil fuel-based states, and they're representing their state. I'm sure they see that as, um, as responding to their constituents. However, it's the country, not the state that they're running, and um, it becomes a there's a much more complex set of issues there in terms of what it means economically for all the other sectors of the economy, not just the energy producers. And we're talking about former Governor Perry at Texas uh, for and, the Department and, of and Scott Pruitt, uh, the attorney general in Oklahoma. For EPA. And, and certainly there, one can abstract out to larger debates that we've had about who's running the government, right? Is this a, a federal system? Is this back to kind of the states' rights and states running the show and who controls those lands. And so we'll see that play out in control of federal lands and whether we're going to mine on federal lands, which the new administration has indicated they want to ease that those restrictions um, or drill for oil or mine for coal. Um, and is that something that the states should should do? And then typically by in in many of those fossil fuel rich states by saying the state runs, it means there's going to be greater extraction? Or is it going to be a, a, some of these larger countrywide interests that start to go to, well, if we're going to burn that coal, then we have these health effects downwind, so literally and figuratively. Right. Um, and so I think part of what is particularly troubling is, um, what shall we say? We, we use the expression in Washington with so many of the policy think tanks or offices where you know the answer before you walk in the door, <laughs> yeah. right? So the concern of, of everybody thinking they have it all figured out and that there's not going to be a willingness to even collect the data to do the analysis to try to be informed by what the past, what the current, and what the future might look like. Um, it also can be reduced to, well, it's a scientific question. Well, no, it's an economic question. It's a human health question. It's a political question, a geopolitical question. Right now, certainly lots of foreign policy and economic policy debates about U.S. relationships with China, particularly on the economic side, with Russia on the geopolitical side. Well, there's a, in Russia a huge producer and of fossil fuels, and China a huge consumer of fossil fuels and a very strong economic uh, economy. And so, when we're talking about energy transitions, we're talking about yes, climate change and the science and why we might want to make it for to respond to those. But we also do it in a way that we're talking about our economic competitiveness in energy. Are we going to because? We don't want the inconvenient truths of climate change to influence our policy. We want to extract fossil fuels. Are we just going to cede the entire renewable energy technology market to other countries, which China is the leader now already? Um, are we going to um, are we going to reduce some of these relationships? as is going to be the case as the nominee for Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, head of the largest energy company in the world, ExxonMobil, um, to these dynamics or understand all the other considerations and how energy 
climate change environment are part of that discussion, not separate from them, and do that in a way that recognizes there's a lot more at stake than whether Oklahoma gets to drill a lot of fossil fuels out this year and for the next four years. As a scientist, though, and you're looking at a scientist policymaker or policy advisor, you're looking at long-term game here, usually. Uh, politicians oftentimes look for short-term gain. That seems to be in conflict. It does. I think in so many ways our our quarterly reports and our two-year election cycle for House of Representatives does us a great disservice. Um, and in fact, that time frame, while approaching a range of environmental issues are seen as long-term, I think in some ways that's been an excuse for inaction. Back in the 90s and early 2000s especially, it was a notion climate change is slow and, you know, maybe our great-grandchildren will suffer these ill effects and it's incremental and so— They'll adapt by the time they exactly, get there. Well, metaphorically and literally, we'll build a higher seawall. We'll just—we'll be wealthy enough to deal. And in fact— uh, and, and the effects were some future possibility rather than demonstrated that they were happening now. And even in the last 10 years, we've really transitioned from uh, seeing this as a future uh, phenomenon to a today and that the series of kind of uh, international groups of scientists doing objective analysis, it, uh, it's all going much faster than we thought and much more dramatic changes than we thought. And so that rate of change in the scientific understanding that all points to change happening now and happening at a much faster pace fits with larger historical records of it, natural systems don't change in a nice linear incremental fashion. They're big, big swings meeting thresholds that we don't necessarily know. And that very quickly can sound abstract, but um, what it means is that very uncertainty shouldn't mean I'm not going to do anything until we have it all figured out. That uncertainty should be, you know, I'm going to take some precautionary steps that mean, you know, if we have this outcome, we have that outcome, we have that, I'm set up to be flexible and resilient in the face of those changes in ways that I have a no regrets policy. I can, I can do things today that no matter where we go, because we know it's going to be changed, where we go, we're set up better to take those hits, um, ones that we may anticipate and ones that we may not. Um, and that, to me, starts becoming responsible policymaking that doesn't require all the answers up front because we'll never have them. And it doesn't um, – and, you know, it's – yeah, it's about being responsible about Change when, when you see one party, and that one party being the Republican Party, who has, of the two parties in this country, been the most against human involvement in, in climate change or even the existence of climate change. When you see that one party taking over all aspects of government, legislative, regulatory, and executive, what keeps you up at night mm -hmm. professionally? What what are you most concerned about? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's the micro and the macro. The micro is there clearly is already and will be a systematic effort to roll back um, particularly the executive action, actions and the regulatory um, changes that have been made under Obama but also previous administrations for protections 
and for as well as incentives to make this um, some of these transitions. So that will be something that has all sorts of manifestations, large and small. In the macro, we as a planet <laughs> don't have a lot of time to bend the curve on greenhouse gas emissions before we put enough momentum in the system, so enough heat in the system, so to speak, that the changes will be really dramatic. And so that then translates into what will the U.S. posture be in engaging the larger world because we really have to have everybody at the table to make this transition, um, most recently manifest in the Paris Agreement from, from December of, of 2015, where the world came together with targets for really fundamentally addressing both the mitigation, the reducing the emissions, as well as starting to figure out how to adapt to the change that's already built into the the, the natural system. So what I fear is that we will, we, the United States, will withdraw from those efforts and that that will really, because of the size of our economy, uh, fundamentally delay at the global level uh, the, needed, the needed response. We'll also miss all sorts of opportunities like green technology and, uh, and such that come with it. But. It was just about a year ago that you and I talked after, after the Paris uh, Agreement. And if I can boil it down to a couple of words, you had some hope mm-hmm. at that time, and you were encouraged by the U.S. involvement in that agreement. It seems that we in this country look at a lot of things sort of xenophobically uh, and have maybe we're reverting back to more of an isolationist uh, view of America and and United States policy. Is that what you're talking about here in relationship to a possible back out of the Paris Accords? Well, I think so. And and it's a it's a false understanding. If it was ever true that we were isolated, um, it, it certainly isn't now, whether that's in the political, economic, other sphere, but certainly in the area of climate change. It doesn't matter whether it is in the United States or on the other side of the earth that those greenhouse gases are emitted. It doesn't matter where it comes. The impacts are going to be it felt It has everywhere. no borders, right? Really has no borders. And it's not that there won't be differential impacts because there certainly will. And unfortunately, those parts of the world least responsible for the problem, those countries that are poor and haven't gone through as much industrialization, haven't burned as many fossil fuels, are going to be the most vulnerable. And so if you're a small island state in the Pacific, sea level rise poses an existential threat to the existence of your country. They had little to no contribution to creating those these climate change problems that they're now suffering from. Or if you're a, a rural farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, through the changes in rainfall and temperature, you're, you're, particularly your agricultural food systems are highly vulnerable to this change. And so kind of traumatic reductions in the productivity of crops. Right? So, so over the last year, I've talked to a lot of reporters that you've linked me up with, and, and we've been talking a, about this issue. And, and the one thing that comes through is this uh, nature of interrelationship between uh, something going on in the environment, something going on in health, something going on in the environment, something going on in food production, and and how really there are no borders. But but if we as a country take this hands off, let's let's draw within ourselves. Uh, 
that seems really problematic. It's problematic for a couple reasons. One, that we will lose our leadership position, and that'll be on gaining the benefits of economic development that comes from green technologies. Also, the the kind of political power when the Chinese are already stepping into a leadership role in the international climate negotiations following on Paris saying we're as opposed to saying, well, the Americans are out, we're out too, saying this is so important. It needs to happen and we'll step in if if the new administration steps out. Now, some of that may be playing to the galleries, but nevertheless, that loss of prestige and leadership, I, I would maintain, has uh, there's there's real loss there. Um, but also, we on the climate front for many years literally did think, well, the wealthy countries, they'll be changed, but we'll deal because we're wealthy. And Bangladesh is low-lying. It'll have these severe floods and intrusion. They'll lose big parts of They've their, always been in trouble, and who right, cares? So they'll right? suffer, and they will suffer. <laughs> However, the, the vulnerability that comes from poverty is not the only vulnerability. The vulnerability that comes from wealth is also a vulnerability when it comes to climate change. Think of our coastlines. We have literally billions of dollars of infrastructure on our coastlines that are now already vulnerable and will increasingly become vulnerable to manifestations of climate change. It's not a kind of there will be more storms and they will be more intense everywhere. There are differences depending on where you where you are in the country. But that, that notion of building a literal or metaphorical seawall to keep these impacts at bay are just fantasy, right? So whether it's the increased intensity and frequency, we don't have a fire season in the West anymore. The whole year is a fire, fire season. season. Um, and we have uh, long-term droughts in southeastern United States, not just southwestern, not, not just California that is having a historic drought. But in that sense, we're we're – seeing impacts in uh, the United States that it's our very wealth that will make us vulnerable, A, because it's expensive to replace, but also because we're not terribly adaptable. The the folks in Bangladesh, are, in many of those, they don't have electricity or it's not there all the time or they don't have clean sources of water. And so they have ways to deal. Now, some of the ways is they get sick more often. But what happens when our electricity goes out, when our clean water goes out and some of these systems with more extreme weather events, we're not particularly good. We don't have that know-how. We don't have that flexibility. We don't have that resilience to deal with these challenges. And I think it's not the right approach to say, oh, Katrina, climate change. But I think as Katrina illustrated how poorly organized we are to deal with these extreme events and their aftermath. Um, it illustrates how vulnerable we are to these kinds of changes. And so until we start thinking about building resilient systems, resilient communities, resilient cities, um, we're, we're missing it. I should say, you know, as there are plenty of things that keep me up at night, the places where I look for hope yeah. are, A, our history of environmental progress in this country has been driven systematically by local and state level authorities, the folks who have to deal with the realities on the ground. The grassroots. And so the innovation that will continue, in part by necessity, will continue to happen in those places. And so we'll see alliances of cities as we're already seeing. So yes, we look to the the national government and the Paris Agreement and such for leadership and progress. 
but the fact that companies are partnering across borders, localities are partnering across borders, and have historically been a source of innovation says to me that there are a lot of things that can be rolled back and done very poorly, but there are also still going to be these centers for innovation and response, part because they're, they're on the front lines and they're going to, they're going to, whether they like it or not, be facing these changes and adapting. And so um, when we're talking about policy responses, we're, whether it's in the classroom with our graduate students or consulting with the, the German environmental climate officials who are trying to make sense of this, I, you know, you need to get Governor Brown in California on the line and stop just focusing on Washington. There are California's sixth largest economy in the world, and they are all in on taking this climate change seriously. And so there are real centers for innovation and policy drive to take this seriously. And so like so many things, it's not black or white. There's a lot that's about concern, and we really should be at a fundamental level. Um, but it's the cupboard is not empty in terms of folks who are taking this seriously and, and trying to respond to it. Today, we've talked with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco, former director of the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast and review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.